Good morning. Thank you all for being here. Kids, you are dismissed up to Grace Place. Thank you for choosing to worship with us this morning. Uh, if you're a guest with us, uh, my name is Tim. I'm the pastor here at TF. And thank you again for choosing to worship with us. If you have your Bibles, open up to Mark uh, chapter 9. Mark 9 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, as I said before, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the seat back around you. If you are using the seat back Bible, you're looking for page 840, 841, somewhere in that range should be Mark chapter 9. And that's where we're going to be hanging out uh, this morning. It's a good day to have the text in front of you because the words are not going to be on the screen. So you're going to want to have the words in front of you to make sure I'm not making this stuff up. Um, as we're turning there and getting settled, I'd like to thank um, the, the people who are just up here and more people who uh, aren't up here, aren't with us today, is the, our worship team. Our worship team puts in a lot of time and energy to use the gifts and talents and abilities that God has given them to uh, serve us, to care for us, to lead us into worship. These are not just musicians who happen to play Christian songs. These are men and women who want to help lead us into the presence of God, to get us ready mentally and emotionally and spiritually to focus on Him every Sunday. And so they give up their time, their energy, as I said, during the week to be able to do that. Uh, a lot of them were here yesterday uh, for about three hours learning. Uh, we had someone come in to uh, do some training with the soundboard, and so uh, the AV team as well um, were here yesterday to work on uh, sound and making sure that there are no distractions, that the, the slides work, that the music sounds good, that things uh, are working the way they're supposed to be to remove any distractions um, to so that we can focus and we can just be and worship God. And so um, thank you for our worship team, for everybody in the AV team. Thank you for everybody who serves in that way. If you uh, would like to serve in either of those roles, um, either of those things are interesting to you. Like I said, you can use those connect cards, uh, circle worship team or AV team, and we will get you connected and plugged in uh, to help you with those things. So um, this morning I want to talk about uh, uh, one of... Not my greater moments, but um, nevertheless, Sarah and I were driving to go visit some family friends, and um, this is back before we, were, we weren't even engaged yet. We were still just dating, and so uh, we're driving, and we're uh, going out to the suburbs, and the car, her car, she was driving, and the car was not running right. Something happened as we were driving uh, that just started, something started to glitch. Um, we weren't accelerating correctly. We were, heard a bunch of noise, and so I told her, you know, pull over. I'll take care of this. Um, and so she, uh, you know, she, we, we get the, the hood uh, up, and um, I look at the engine. I could change the oil, and I can, like, check filters, but, like, I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, but I'm not going to tell her that. And so, uh, you know, I look at the engine, and nothing is smoking. Nothing is, like, there's no, like, red light. And like, hey, here's the issue. Um, and so then I look under the car, and I see the, the protective cover that goes under the undercarriage. Um, has come undone and is uh, rubbing on the ground. That's where some of the noise was and was hitting one of the tires. And that's what a lot of the issue was. And so, again, I was like, I got this. And so I, I start trying to rip and pull because this thing wasn't going to get reattached. And so I start trying to rip and pull. But it's made of, um, like, metal fibers wrapped in there. Uh, so I'm ripping and pulling and tugging. I'm on the side of the road. Like, I was dressed nice because we were going to see some of family friends. And, like, I'm ripping and pulling to this thing. It was not coming off. Not going to happen. Not coming off. Uh, so Sarah, you know, every couple minutes was like, hey, do you want me to call somebody and get us some out? I got it. I got it. I'm fine. I got this. And so after I struggled with this thing for way longer than I'd like to admit, finally uh, she called her dad, uh, and her dad and one of his friends came out um, with a tool bag, and within like three minutes had this thing undone, and we were back on the road, and I felt yay big. Um, and, uh, you know, I felt defeated. I felt a little embarrassed. Um, 
that I couldn't do this on my own, that I couldn't uh, protect and care for Sarah in that moment. Uh, but I realize now, much removed from it and much older and wiser, that uh, I didn't have the right tools to do the job, that I was relying on myself, I was relying on my own strength and limited knowledge, and I didn't rely and didn't trust in the needed tools for the job. Um, so with that said, we're going to jump into Mark 9, uh, starting in verse 14. So uh, we're going to read a big chunk, and then we'll go back and talk about it. So Mark 9, starting in verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? Someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he is a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So we have some contrasting experiences going on. So in the, the very end of chapter 8, what we looked at last week going into, or the very beginning of chapter 9, um, what we looked at last week was Jesus, Peter, James, and John were up on a mountain. Um, Jesus was transfigured. The full radiance and glory of God was shown. Elijah and Moses show up. There was this moment of illustrating that Jesus is the one who fulfills all of the Old Testament, that he is greater than the prophets, that he is greater than the law, that it was this amazing display of God's power. And it was this reassurance to the disciples. It was the kind of experience that fills you up. You know, you have one of those moments, you have one of those, those Sundays, you have one of those times where you get those moments of worship where it's like, man, I'm ready to go. This feels great. Um, and so G Jesus and Peter and James and John, they come down the mountain and immediately are thrown right back into conflict with the world. Immediately they walk up into another situation. That conflict was made manifest in the religious authorities and Satan himself. And so they have this great time. I don't know if you've ever had those times where you have this great time of prayer or worship. And then it feels like almost immediately you are reminded of the brokenness of this world. So Jesus and the three disciples were up on the mountain. Down below the rest, the other nine disciples had gotten themselves into a situation. They had tried to cast out a demon from a boy and they had failed. A crowd had formed, and some in the crowd were scribes, and they began to harass and argue with the disciples. Presumably, they were giving them grief over not being able to cast out this demon. 
You ever have those people in your life who are the kind of people who will point out your flaws, point out your failings, your shortcomings, not to be helpful or instructive, but rather just to hurt and condemn and tear you down? They think they are smarter, better, stronger, and they want you to know it. And in doing so, they take the attention away from the original problem and they make the situation about themselves. Because the scribes aren't trying to help. They don't try to cast out the demon. They just point out how the disciples have failed. And by the time Jesus shows up, it says the crowd is amazed that he's there. He shows up and he, the only obvious issue to him is this argument that's going on, not what caused it. Because the scribes have made this all about themselves. So Jesus asks, what is this all about? And a man from the crowd speaks up. We see in verse 17 that this man had brought his son, originally looking for Jesus, but Jesus was up on a mountain, and so he brings him to the disciples and asks them to take care of this situation. The man's son was possessed by a demon, and this demon was trying to hurt and destroy this young boy. We see through a variety of uh, the explanation that uh, in verse 17 and 25, the demon had made this boy mute and deaf. Basically cut this boy off from the rest of the world, isolated him. There was no communication, there was no real relationships. He's mute and deaf, he has no way to really interact with anyone. Verse 18, it says that it throws, the demon throws the boy to the ground, foaming at the mouth, he goes rigid. Verse 20, he has convulsions. In verse 22, it says that the demon would throw the boy into fires and water to drown him. So at this point, this boy's probably very burnt and scarred. So not only can he not communicate, not only is when he's in pain, he can't really tell his dad what's wrong. He's covered in burns and scars. We find out in verse 21, this has been happening since childhood, basically his whole life. Now you can read this story and many of the symptoms that we see in this story that's happening to this boy sound like what we would today call epilepsy, right? If somebody showed up at a doctor's office and said, my boy falls down, he's looking like he's having seizures, he's convulsing, he's foaming at the mouth, doctors would say, epilepsy, done. But this was more than that. This was not just, oh, it's primitive times where they didn't have knowledge and doctors, so clearly what they thought was a demon was epileptic. No, this is a demon possession. You see, Spiritual world conversations, when we start talking about possession, we start talking about demons, usually these kind of things go one of two ways. Either everything is a demon, every bad thing in the world, everything it happens is a demon, right? I, we got stuck on the side of the road because Satan himself unhooked that undercarriage thing and caused us to stop on the side of the road. Or the other side of the conversation is demons don't really exist, There is no spiritual world. You never have to consider it. Science doesn't consider it, so we just don't even allow for it. The Bible is very clear that the spiritual world is very real. Now, I don't think we need to over-spiritualize every element of every detail of our lives, but at the same time, I believe that we would do well to be mindful of the reality of the spiritual world, especially when it comes to physical and mental health. Society is way too quick to ignore what could very well be spiritual forces at play. I personally, I don't know where that line is, but I do know that it's real, and things like this, we can't ignore this. And so we see, as we jump back into the text, this boy has been struggling his whole life with this, has been suffering his whole life through this. And no doubt, his father has probably tried everything he possibly can 
to heal, to protect, to care for his son. Both he and the boy are helpless and hopeless. There is nothing he can do. There is nothing the boy can do. Apparently, there's nothing the disciples can do. Jesus alone can bring hope. Jesus alone can bring life here. That's what the father thought, right? That he said in verse 18, I brought my son to you. You weren't here, and your disciples couldn't fix the situation. So I don't know what to do now. So Jesus responds, finally, after taking this in, and he responds in verse 19. And he says in verse 19, after hearing all of this, he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? So who is the faithless generation that he's talking about? I think it's everybody involved in this whole situation. The scribes who... We know how they feel about Jesus, right? They've condemned him. They said he's working for Satan. We know where the scribes stand in this whole thing. The crowd here, it says, only got excited. They only got excited and amazed because Jesus showed up. He hadn't even done anything yet, and it says they're amazed because they're excited for a show. They want to see Jesus do something cool. And then we have the disciples. I mean, let's just be frank. The disciples failed. And they failed publicly. And it's not like they hadn't succeeded in casting out demons before. In chapter 6, Jesus sent the disciples out two by two, and he gives them authority to teach, to, uh, to teach, to preach, to call people to repentance, to heal, and to cast out demons. And it says in chapter 6 that they do that, that many people were healed, many demons were cast out. So they have this ability. They know they can do it, but here they fail. The nine of them down on the bottom of this mountain fail in this situation. And really, if you go back in to the beginning of chapter 9, what we talked about last week, the three up there fail to understand. Right? Jesus is in his full radiant glory. Moses and Elijah show up, and Peter wants to skip and ignore everything Jesus has been teaching them. He wants to just move right to, okay, it's Messiah time, let's go and crush Rome. The three up there didn't understand. Over and over Really, this whole week and a half section that we've been looking at in, verse, in chapter 8 and 9, it happens between about a week and a half, two weeks, something like that. This whole chapter, two chapters is focused around Jesus trying to be very clear and to direct to teach the, the disciples who he is and what he has come to do. And over and over again, they fail to understand. You see the boat ride in chapter 8 starting in verse 14, where Jesus tells the disciples he has given them lots of evidence of who he is, and they still act like they have no idea. They are still amazed and bewildered by him. They can't understand how he does the things he does. And yes, God is amazing and does amazing things. But at times, what Jesus is getting at, these disciples, these twelve who should know better, are no different than the crowds who just want to show See, just because you are geographically close to someone doesn't mean you actually know them. Just because you are in a church, you are around Christians, you grew up in a Christian home, doesn't make you a Christian by proxy. And so Jesus responds here. He finds out about this situation that the disciples had tried, they had failed, and he responds in frustration. How long? How many times? When are you guys going to understand and we find out at the very end of the section, we'll get to it in a little bit, why they failed. But Jesus isn't going to let their failure, let their lack of faith derail his compassion. 
Because Jesus responds to the situation, yes, with frustration over the situation, but also with compassion. And so he calls for the boy to be brought to him. He says, bring him to me. Jesus is engaged in this situation. He's not walking away. He knows what he's up against, and he has no doubt, no worry, no fear. There is nothing greater than the power of Jesus. And so they bring the boy to him, and the demon throws him into a fit. He's convulsing and foaming at the mouth. Jesus sees this suffering firsthand. The father had told him about it, but now he sees it firsthand. And then he learns this has been like this this boy's whole life. This demon has tried to kill this boy by throwing him into fires and rivers. That's Satan's entire goal, to steal, kill, and destroy. He may do an outright attack like he's done to this little boy, or he might disguise it. He might hide his intentions and convince you that his way, or rather he'll convince you that your way is better than God's way. But make no mistake, every time Satan's entire goal is steal, kill, destroy. The father has seen it firsthand. And probably with some worry, based on the failures of the disciples and probably years of others failing to try and help his boy, he pleads with Jesus in verse 22. It is often cast him into fire and water to destroy him, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Have compassion on us, have pity on us, and help us. This is a man desperate and helpless and out of options. He's out of ideas. He is once again watching his son suffer, and he can do nothing to stop it. And Jesus, being the master teacher that he is, never letting a teachable moment pass by, he focuses on the three words of that man. He says in verse 23, If you can. If you can. All things are possible for the one who believes. He says, if you can. This is not Jesus being mad. This is not Jesus being short-tempered. He's not mocking him. He's not frustrated. He's not belittling him. I believe he is compassionately inviting this man into this moment to learn and grow himself. Because this isn't about the willingness of Jesus. And the man doesn't question the willingness of Jesus. Jesus, just by being engaged, shows his willingness and compassion to this man for this boy. Jesus' statement in verse 23, really it can be said another way. Your son's healing is not based on if I can heal him. It's based on if you have faith, if you trust, if you believe. This is not about if Jesus is willing or if Jesus has the ability. This is about faith in the power of God. Will this father doubt the limitless power of God? Because true faith, true faith sets no limits on the power of God and submits itself to the will of God. Will this man step into this place? That's what Jesus is asking. If you can, he's saying, you've, you've put the if on the wrong guy. The if isn't on me, the if is on you. If you have the faith, because if you have faith, all things are possible. And we see in verse 24, immediately, Mark's favorite word, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. That's a prayer. That's a prayer that speaks to my soul. 
That's a prayer that just, that, I get that. That makes sense to me. That's an honest prayer. That's a, Lord, I trust in you. Lord, I believe you, but Lord, I have reservations. God, I got hesitations. I have places in my life where I know intellectually that you know best and I should give them to you, but I don't always act and live that out. This is an honest prayer. This is a person saying, I believe in Jesus, but my faith isn't perfect. My faith is weak. My faith at times is small. My faith has questions. My faith needs some faith. Paul explains it in Romans 7.15, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. I think it's a lot similar to this kind of prayer. And this is reality. This is what being a Christian can look like and feel like. But you see, where we mess up is where the Father gets it right. Because what we tend to, what I tend to do, it's church, I can be honest, I try to work harder I try to do better, try to do more, be stronger, be holier, Tim. Get more done. And while we should take our faith and live it out, right? Faith is about living those things out. It's not just intellectual knowledge. We've got to live these things out. Yes, we live it out in a way that glorifies God. But if we are constantly trying to work or earn or grow our faith on our own outside of true reliance and dependence on God, nothing's ever going to happen. Faith has to have humility. Because true faith says, I trust that I don't know best. That I'm not great enough, that I need someone else to trust. Faith can say, I don't have all the answers, I don't know enough, and God, where my faith is small, I need you to grow that faith in me. And the only way your faith is going to grow is from the divine intervention of the one who gave you your faith in the first place, God himself. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, it's an important verse. It's why it's on the wall. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. You can't earn it. You, can't, you didn't start it. You didn't earn it. You can't grow it. You won't complete it. It is God alone. He does all of the work. He offers all of the grace. He calls you to himself. And so this man responds in desperation, in hope, in anguish, in faith, in doubt, in humility, in all of it. He humbly says, I need help. I believe, but there's part of me that I just, I need something. I need something else. I need you. How does Jesus respond? When Jesus saw that the crowd came, he speaks to the demon and he rebukes the demon. He doesn't tell the man, hey, you need to have 100% perfect faith before I'm going to step in. Go and get all your questions answered. Go get all your doubts confirmed. Go get all your theology in line, and then I'll help. And thank God that he doesn't act that way. Because if we had to have perfect faith to approach Jesus, we would never get to approach Jesus. One of my favorite hymns is, Come Ye Sinners. And there's a verse in that that says, Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. If you wait till your life is clean enough, if you think you've got to get clean enough, smart enough, holy enough before you can show up to Jesus, you're never going to show up. Jesus meets us where we are. 
he steps in where we are humbly able to admit our need for him, he's going to show up. It's what he does. He doesn't expect you to be perfect because he's perfect. Jesus sees the crowd start to gather, start to get even bigger. And before this can turn into pure chaos, he rebukes, he rebukes the unclean spirit and with a simple sentence commands this demon to leave and never come back. This demon must obey because he is a created being subject to the uncreated, eternal, all-powerful King of kings and Lord of lords, God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. Yes, there is a spiritual war happening. There are demons. There are evil forces in our world. Turn on the news for 30 seconds. Satan wants to kill, steal, and destroy, but do not get it twisted. This is not a battle of yin and yang happening in our world. This is not an evenly laid out chess game. This is not two equal entities of good and bad doing battle throughout history. God is greater. The demons only have so much power and so much control and so much influence. They are all subject to the word and will of God. And so the demon obeys, but not before once again trying to inflict pain and punishment on this boy. He throws him into a fit. And when the demon leaves the boy, he is like a corpse. He looks dead. He is stiff as a board. And we see in verse 27, Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Verse 27 starts, it says, but Jesus one of my favorite two-word phrases in the Bible is every time it says, but God, or but Jesus. Because usually what happens there is something has happened. Evil has looked like it is one. Evil has done its damage. But God, but Jesus steps in and changes things. This boy appears to be dead. It appeared that all hope had been lost. It appeared that Jesus only made things worse. He's yelling at this demon, and now this boy looks like he's dead. But God. But God took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. If you've been with us, if we've been walking through Mark, it's similar to what he does with Jairus' daughter in chapter 5. She was actually fully dead. This boy only seemed to be dead. But Mark clearly wants to make the parallel. He wants us to think about death and resurrection with the words he chooses about Jesus raising him up and he arose. He took this boy by the hand. Jesus' compassion once again shining through as he stoops down and takes this boy who has been beaten and battered his whole life and lifts him up and he arose. Just as he lifted Jairus' daughter right up through death, death, he lifts this boy right up through the grasp of Satan and back to life. Jesus gives life. He gives us new life. This boy is no longer tormented, no longer inhabited and controlled, no longer isolated or rejected, no longer in pain, no longer a prisoner trapped within himself. He is free. He is literally has a new life to lead because that's what God does. Things look bad. They look helpless and hopeless and overwhelming, and the chaos looks like it's winning. But God steps in and does what no one and nothing else can do. He brings life, new life, real life. And that new life comes to us today the same way it did back then. 
faith in Jesus, faith in the power and authority and compassion and grace of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That and that alone. This boy and this father have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. They have experienced the new life that Jesus has to offer. And while that is the perfect happy ending, right, that would be the perfect place to end this story on. We do have one final scene where we need to close the loop with the group who really started this whole thing, the disciples. And so in verse 28, they get away from everybody. And privately, the disciples ask, why could we not cast out this demon? Jesus says to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Why couldn't we do it? Simple answer, you didn't pray. This isn't some deep, there's some spiritual perfect role that you work in that if you have this certain kind of spirituality, now you can cast out demons. Jesus just says, you didn't pray. You tried to cast out this demon on your own power, on your own accord, and you didn't seek God in this situation. When don't you pray? We don't pray, sometimes when we don't want to, but often when we don't think we need to. We don't pray when we think, we got this under control. When you think, it's not necessary to include God in this. Which is really basically saying, God, I trust you with my eternal standing. One day I'm going to go face to face with you and I trust that because of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, I will be welcomed in as one of your children, but I don't trust you with where I'm going to spend my money. I trust that Jesus' death and resurrection paid for my sins, sets me up to live into this new life, but I'm going to decide where I live. I'm going to decide what job I take. I'm going to decide who I date. And I'm not going to consider God's will at all. We forget or we ignore that anything that you have, any ability, any talent, any wisdom, any understanding, any blessing that you have, it is through and by the providence of God. And we get lazy. And we take it for granted. And then when we fail at something, or something doesn't go the way it's supposed to go, we blame God and we get angry at Him. Why didn't this go the way it's always gone? We lose sight of His grace and providence and ignore Him, and we don't consider going to Him in prayer in all things. Because prayer ultimately really is aligning our will with the will of God. It's coming to an understanding that only through God's grace and providence things happen. But we ignore that and we believe I got this. I don't need his help on this one. You don't got it. And the beauty is you don't have to. Because we don't worship or serve a concept or an idea or a belief system. We worship the one true God who says, bring it to me. Bring me the boy. Bring me the girl. Bring me whatever situation, whatever issue, whatever thing you got, you bring it to me and see what I can and will do. And we can rest in that. We can trust that. We can have faith in that. Because of that, we can bring all things to him with humility, by faith, 
in prayer. So let's do that. Let's pray. God, we thank you. Lord, we thank you for giving us this chance to gather, giving us this chance to read your word, giving us this chance to be reminded of your power, of your authority, of your grace. Lord, as we live, keep us mindful of where our faith comes from, that it is you who provides, it is you who gives, it is you who we trust in. Lord, keep us humble. Keep us always focused on you. Keep us always rediscovering our need for the gospel and letting that set the tone for every day that we live. Our need for a Savior, our realization that we can't do this on our own. God, as we walk into situations, as we deal with circumstances of our lives, and we realize, God, we have, we have faith, but our faith is weak. Our faith is small. And we have our doubts and our questions and our worries and concerns, and we can't possibly see how you're going to move. And so we move on our own without you. God, bring us back to that place. Bring us back, bring us to the place that the father of this boy is at. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Keep us humble. Grow this faith in us. Fan this flame in us. Help us to grow and live into the life you have called us to live. One that glorifies you. One that makes much of you and points people to you. But God, we can't do that on our own. And so Lord, we are asking. And you've told us time and time again in your word that if we come looking for you, you're going to show up. You say right here in this passage... If you have faith, look at the possibilities. Look at what is possible. Not because that father did anything, but because you will do something. God, we have the faith that you can move. We have the faith that you can move in our lives. We have the faith that you give us the faith that you would move in the lives of those around us. Give us the faith that you can do something in Chicago that looks helpless and that looks helpless and hopeless. This city needs you, Lord. We are asking that you would move in this place. Lord, as we go out to be lights in this world, give us the faith, give us the humility, give us the strength to be able to do so. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen.